Hey everyone, welcome to the world's okayest entrepreneur, the podcast for the okay entrepreneur who doesn't have an MBA and is just kind of figuring it out on the fly. Today on the podcast, we have Jack and Betsy of TC Farm. They, um, the best way to describe TC Farm is if you honestly took your farmer's market and uh, DoorDash and blended them together. And that is what TC Farm, I know it sounds pretty great. And that's because it is pretty great. But let me tell you, this business was not the idea. Um, this story, I did not, I knew, learned so much about them. And honestly, just like their drive and passion and commitment, because man, y'all, there were some high highs and there are some low lows on this story. And you will come to find out because there's also a reoccurring theme of things that they keep on getting kicked out of. So yes, uh, listen to this one and really make sure to go through the end. So that way you can learn how to support this business on their new 2.0 version, because it's really exciting and I think it's something that we all greatly want to see in the world. So yeah, on to the episode. Today I'm really excited. We have Betsy and Jack from TC Farm with us and I kind of actually first got introduced to y'all during the pandemic. So we'll talk about that because I know your business probably changed a lot like all of our businesses during the pandemic. Like I don't know anybody's business that didn't change during the pandemic. But what you do is really interesting. You actually are a you kind of make, you're like a hybrid of farmer's markets and shipped. And if they had like, or, you know, DoorDash or whatever, it had a baby, like that is your business. Is that like safe to kind of say? Is that a good hybrid analogy of it? That is a very entertaining analogy of the TC Farm brand itself. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, just imagine if your local farmer's market and DoorDash had a baby, this is TC Farm at the end of the day. So yeah. It sounds like a dream, to be honest, because sometimes it's a little hard to get in contact with the farmer and go get the food and all that stuff. Like, which I have a lot of experience with because I live in the country. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, no, it is It is really a challenge. I think getting access to local food is really difficult for consumers. And you can see that in the different studies we've looked at. But for sure, making it more convenient and accessible kind of lifts the whole system up. So like, where did all this begin? So let's go back. Where did your career start with this, doing this stuff? And like, you could even go back further than that. Yeah, so not on purpose. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> It never is. Can verify. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> Betsy will say that she married a computer guy and somehow now she... And then ended up living on a farm. That was not part of the plan. Were you, Betsy, like, I'm going to be living the city life, kind of? It was that... Well, clearly, I married a computer guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're like, but we're going to no, be on no, Silicon no. Valley. I take that back. I married an entrepreneur, and I didn't see the other paths that would take. Yes. <laughs> yeah, she should have thought smarter about that. <laughs> but yeah, my background is, is IT. So in high school, we started a, a IT consulting business out of selling computers, like to best, auto Best Buy and stuff, and just helping our clients. is all pre-geek squad and everything. Help them set up their computers. We heard there was this networking thing. You could connect computers together. Mm-hmm. So we, I'm dating myself there a little bit, but we helped them do that and then kind of foolishly turned that into a business instead of going to school. So there was that. I just want to pause here for a second because we just kind of like went really quickly. You were like in high school. So like how old were you? Probably 16, 17. And it was super on the side, like side hustle, basically. Uh-huh. Right. But like the majority of 16, 17 year olds are like, I'm going to like be doing sports after school and like that's it. And you were like, I'm going to be starting a computer. I, I mean, a lot of high school entrepreneurs are pretty much like, I'm going to like make a product, not a service based business. Right. So like, how did you even get to that point of being like, I'm actually going to do this? Accidentally. But yeah, we, when we were selling the computers to our customers, it was a commission basis. So we were 
primarily working with businesses. And they, there was just no services to help them complete that purchase and make it into a usable product. And so the stores at that time were pretty happy that, you know, our bosses were pretty happy that we were bringing customers in because we were providing this extra service. And so it was just kind of a natural extension to just make it work better. So because we were in the commission structure selling, it kind of encouraged that entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And where was this? That originally we're at Best Buy, which was not commissioned. We moved over to a company called Computer City, which is now not in business. Mm -hmm. Everything's, you know, a monolith now of yeah. retail. So so that was just a local store at the, in the gallery area in Edina. Okay, got it. So it was very much so, okay, so like Galleria of Edina area. So for people that aren't from like the twin, it's like a, kind of like a larger size suburb. Yeah. I don't know if actually was it, it's probably just like a medium sized suburb maybe back then. Yeah, it's not huge. It's a small, yeah. small footprint. Yeah. So did you have a mentor who was helping you get this into like becoming a business? No, we were just making things up. Okay. So literally it was like. <laughs> Perfect. That is typically how it goes. So it's just like supply and demand, basically. So there was enough people who were saying, I need, I need this. And you were like, we can do this. I, there was a coworker of mine that we kind of became partners in this first entrepreneurship venture. And so I think we kind of encourage each other because, well, he thinks we can do it. Well, I think we can do it. So then we should do it. And nobody really thought whether we should do it. Right. Just kind of happened. So you had a co-founder at the age of 17 then is what we're saying. Correct. And at that age, you're like basically daring each other to like jump off of things still. Yes. Yeah. They were like 18 year old boys who were like, sure, we know how to do that. We can do that for you. Whereas really they didn't, but they figured they'd be able to figure it out. And somehow they did. I mean, I don't know if it's an eight tier. I feel like any entrepreneur is like, just like, honestly, like, I'm just going to say that I can do it. And then I'm going to figure it out. Like literally I met somebody last night that was like, hey, we need you to do this thing. And she was like, I don't know how to do it. But literally they were waving money in front of me. And I said, like, I will, f I will figure that out. So that's, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So what happened next? So through that process, we I had a full ride at the university and then, you know, dropped out of school to pursue this half-baked idea of this business with, with my partner at the time. And This is where he apologizes to his mom. Sorry, mom. Yes, it was... Kind of heartbreaking, I'm sure. I can't. Uh, yeah. So sorry, mom. <laughs> and and then we we kind of built that business by just making it happen. And at some point, there was this thing called the internet that came around. And so we, my business partner, actually kind of took the lead in that and did a good job with it. But he helped us kind of become the second high speed internet provider in town. So we provided DSL to consumers and primarily to our business clients. But just you could get a dial up account from us or a dial up account from AOL, and that was kind of part of our business. You how know? did you know how to do that? Because like I still don't really understand how the internet gets to me. That was something he mostly took care of, but it was really interesting to learn about. And yes, you're absolutely right. We did not know how it worked and just made it up as we went. Yeah. Just bought equipment and went into debt, buying equipment on credit cards that my parents co-signed for. So we had them. Um, did you understand credit cards at this point? Or well, you, you could buy things and you'd pay them off. Okay. Maybe. I'm just going to insert this like meme from like Shit's Creek right now, which is like, yeah, It's a write-off. Yeah, it's a write-off. Like who pays for it? I don't know what the government. The government yeah. pays for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we built the inner business and then dot-com happened and everything kind of blew up and, and uh, it was time to exit with this partner, um, just wasn't working out, unfortunately. And so my parents stepped in again, sorry, mom, they said, well, we'll help pay him up, pay him off. So he'll go away and you can focus on the business and not have these you know, interpersonal distractions that were causing issues and then pay off kind of all this credit card debt that we had from the equipment for the internet. Yeah. So then I was 20 years old or so and had, um, we had gone from five employees or six employees down to zero. 
mm-hmm. and uh, owed my parents a hundred grand and realized I was unemployable because I had dropped out of school. So that was that was a challenge for me. It's kind of like a student loan. You know what? It is. I learned a lot. I probably that's good. Right. That's you know what that really is helpful. To- probably went further than yeah. Maybe you maybe would have gone in college with it. To be completely honest. Yeah. You know, I should I should really think about that and internalize that concept. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, the school of hard knocks is a real thing. And, you know, it just, it comes with so many learnings, sometimes way more learnings than right. what. That actually, to me, if you're thinking about like assets versus liabilities, that hundred grand that you had in debt to your parents was actually a, an asset type of debt versus a, a real liability, which like a student loan is a bad debt, technically speaking, because you can never get out of it. And it doesn't actually, you have an education, but it doesn't sometimes, depending on what you get your education in, I got money in sculpture. It sort of paid itself off. Yeah. But sounds like the debt you had was like for buying equipment, for making money, for doing things like that. It was like basically like a business loan. Correct. Yeah. There was there were hard assets behind it. They were just rapidly depreciating when dot-com happened. Right. Right. So I have several questions because we're kind of like going over them. A, did this business have a name? Yeah. It was called Innova Technologies. Well, that's kind of fancy, actually. Yeah. yeah. How did you get to that? We were like, innovation, we're going to take over the world, and someday we'll have helicopters and private islands and living in fantasy land, like <laughs> Betsy said, 18-year-old boys. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Little did you know, you're going to be owning a farm soon. Yeah, she should have thought better. <laughs> <laughs> How did you even go about, like, because you said, kind of like, worried about, like, you had five or six employees. Like, how were you finding these people? Was it just like, hey, you have two hands and we know each other. Am I hiring you? Or did you actually, like, go about and, like, post jobs and like interview people well this was before the internet so i'm not sure you could post jobs i mean i don't know how they did that in the newspaper right isn't that how we, we, found had, we, had, we had a yellow pages ad yeah. to get internet from us there was also recruiters i know this because oh, my dad was looking for jobs and so there was a recruiter that would basically send letters out to people and you'd get part of, you'd become part of like this like i do it you would talk to the recruiter. They send out your resume and things to jobs in the mail, and then it comes back to you with responses several weeks or months later, and that's how you get a job. The world has changed. So you pay a recruiter. That's really changed. Yeah. So one of the employees was this partner's brother. So he, after that split, had yeah. another employee was someone called us uh, doing his, uh, like a project at St. Thomas. As a uni- he was a university student. And he was like, hey, can I do like a marketing project for you? And just, I don't know how, I think he knew the other partner through church connection or something. And then was like, sure, we're like, sure, come do that. And then I graduated and was like, can I come work for you? And we are like, Sure, we'll just make things up as we go. So I don't even quite know. Some of the friends of friends networking is how we hired people. Mm-hmm. That's typically how it goes. Yeah. Or how I was like, I hired my first intern and I was like, I was like, oh, I'm going to have an intern and not have to like pay them and I'll figure this out. And then literally like three weeks later, I was like, I feel really bad right now and I need to pay <laughs> you. You're working actually really well. And yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. This is back when you're like free and like not like unpaid internships were a thing. Yeah. 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 Like you got college credit. Everybody felt like they won. Yeah. Right. But I felt really bad. So, yeah. Good for you. Yeah. It's always a learning lesson. All right. So you are now 20 then? Something like that. I don't remember. Yeah. 20. And then what happened at that moment in 20 when you were like, we had just, you had five employees, the partnership dissolved. What happened next? So everybody left. And then I just had a lot of work, which is great because I was consulting and building time. And I had nothing to do except live and wallow in my anxiety. So I just worked all the time and then I build lots of hours. So that helped kind of start, try to chip down that that debt with no payroll and just billable hours. Yeah. And through a series of events that are not worth going through, we ended up selling the internet portion of that business to a local provider. And he basically paid off, I think it was like 180 grand, paid off all that debt, 
had money to put down on a house and kind of like take a step step back. Um, so that was really, really amazing. And then unfortunately, he, he passed away a few months later. So I just felt like it was like this, oh man, uh, you know, he came down and saved my life. And then it was, that was the time for him. So it was, um, it was really kind of inspirational. I don't know if that's the right word, but mm-hmm. impactful, yeah. impactful maybe. Yeah. So sliding door moment is what yeah. we like to one call door them. Open, yeah. yeah. One door closed, another door yeah. opens type of moment. Yeah. It was really interesting. And then we, and then well, we didn't have any debt. And everything was kind of resolved of this previous issues. And so that person that came work with us from St. Thomas, he came back and worked, worked with me. And so he became a new partner in that, in that kind of new business. And so we called that outsourced IT. And it was just consulting, helping people set up their stuff. We had help desk services. We set up recurring revenue for our, our customers. Hey, look, pay us. Kind of like, it was like, they didn't have the term then, but it was fractional IT, like a fractional CIO with help desk support. And so he, he and I built that up over a number of years and eventually sold that business off to the Geek Squad spinoff. We actually merged for a couple of years before we exited. But you know. how old were you when that happened? Uh, do you remember that? Mm, early 20s, 23, 25? Yeah, probably mid 20s. Okay, so from like 16 to 25, you have started two businesses and then sold both of them. I mean, I feel like that's like entrepreneurial like years. That's like 100 lifetimes. Totally. I'm thinking about this too. I'm like going through my brain. I'm like, this is like at least 20 years of experience right now. <laughs> yeah, like 30 years of experience. So yeah. You're only legally able to drink for the last four years of this. You're yeah. Like, how, yeah. how are you getting through I this? I you sold the business before you were legally able to like drink. <laughs> like, yeah. That's how we got so much work done. Yeah, honestly, yeah. You're like, I can only hit consume coffee, actually, like in the legal eyes of the government. So, yeah. That's like, do you feel like the second time around, was it like, did you know a little bit more for your second business after kind of going through in a, Innova Tech? Did I say it right? Yeah, Innova Technologies. Innova yeah, Technologies. Yeah, we just called it Innova. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of an awkward name. No, I think it sounds no, great, it sounds to be Swedish. honest. It's like, yeah, you, yeah yes. <laughs> yeah, we, I don't know, we, um, I'm not sure we, we definitely learned different things, of course. It was a lot, very different experience, but it was a lot of just kind of relief of, we, we were going into that Geek Squad spinoff thinking, okay, this is a larger group. They've been successful with this, with the work at Best Buy on their consumer branding. And this was the business to business side of that, that business has stayed separate of Best Buy. Mm-hmm. So we were really excited, like, okay, we've got a great foundation. We actually bought another small company and kind of merged these three companies together. So it was super interesting to learn how to bring different cultures, different customer bases and make a million mistakes so that you could learn from them. And, and so we, um, we definitely learned different things, but I think it was like more of a relief of just the next stage, like what we were doing was a, was a challenge. We're always worried about what's going to happen. When's the next, how are we going to make payroll the next week? And and it was always a challenge. And we could kind of think, so we thought we were merging into a, a larger group that kind of had some of those things figured out. So it seems like there was a lot of anxiety about this time, about like the debt, the, this, like the making sure you had payroll and things like that. Like, how were you able to push past that to keep taking bets and keep growing your businesses and, and keep trying businesses versus just being like, I'm going to go get hired by a company and do IT for like a hospital? Well, I'll go in reverse maybe. I didn't feel like I was employable because I would look at now they have these posts and there was like, well, you have to have this experience and these titles. And I didn't really understand what any of that meant. I just did things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, oh, so basically so there was like no also, choice. Yeah. Yeah. And they're saying you had to have a degree and you did not have a degree. A degree or just like a title. Like I just had, I just had did stuff and I was a punk kid, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> the real joke is that those titles are actually made up and it's based, like, they give you those titles based on, like, the things that you do. Yeah, but in terms of the anxiety, I think, I don't know if I got the quote right, but it's basically the concept of, I think, to be a successful entrepreneur, one of the helpful attributes is kind of have a low-level management, manageable of anxiety all the time. Yeah. yeah. 
And so Betsy maybe can comment about that, but really trying to not get it so that you're not functional, but a functioning level of anxiety to just push through. I actually feel that in my core because I feel like, you know, it's like whenever you go to the doctor's office and they're like, how's your stress level? And I'm like, it's fine. I actually like, no, I'm good because it's always at like a a slow hum of like, like, I mean, don't go inside my brain because it's like I'm like ping ponging 8,000 things like this has to happen, then this has to happen, then this has to happen. You know, it's bad when like you're like, oh, my God, like shit has seriously just gotten insane. That's when, you know, like the entrepreneur says that and you're like, oh, this is this is bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) real bad here. So, yeah. Yeah, I always feel like there's a little fire just down inside of me burning a little bit or maybe smoldering. And But when that becomes a fire, things are, that means things are on fire. <laughs> yep, accurate. Because the capacity is so high to like handle that stress. Yeah. Yeah. And usually the best way to, to stifle that fire is to quite literally just dump more stuff onto it. And then it kind of puts it out a little bit for a while. You just keep it down inside. <laughs> and this is about the time when Betsy and I got, got married, actually. And okay. so we got married and we, I remember driving up on our honeymoon and then I was like no 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 wait we have like a four hour drive to go up north for the honeymoon and then he's like let me tell you this story about my past life I'm like whoa (laughs) wait wait you got married you didn't know about any of this well I knew about this but not like all the like levels of challenge with all of it Uh you know like we'd have dates where it's like let's go out for dinner and then we can't go out for a drink because I have to go to this customer's office like all night long and do something on other computers I'm like okay and I'd go and we like I don't know, just plug things in where he tells me to do it. Yeah. So I was aware of things, but then, like, he just told the whole story of everything. I'm like, oh, that's a lot. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't realize until we had that four hours in the car and she was stuck with me. (laughs) Then I was like, now I can tell you how I really feel. (laughs) Was this your first road trip? Oh, no. Okay, I was going to say. No, but they're like, he was like, we're married now, so I'm going to drop the bomb of that. Now it's time. My 50 years of entrepreneurship that happened in eight years. (laughs) Let me tell you. Yeah. Oh my so, gosh, that's funny. Was there one moment to you, Betsy, that stuck out with that? You were like, that is fucking insane. I cannot believe that happened. I don't know that it's really a moment. Mm-hmm. It's just like the enormity of what you said. Like it's yeah. how much experience in this time. And also like think about like a 16-year-old kid coming in and selling all of this stuff to like I'm quote unquote saying, legitimate adults. Yeah. Right. And thinking Everybody like, imagine your neighbor right now that's 16 and he's going to be like, I'm going to sell you thousands of dollars of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like just the moxie to be able to go out and sell that and make it happen. It's right. like, wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know what moxie means. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> You have it. Just know that. It's so, like swagger, yeah. maybe. Is that a good way to another word for it? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Just confidence. I didn't go to unwavering confidence yeah. as a young kid be like, hey, why don't you give me a few thousand dollars? Okay. <laughs> You're not gonna lose this. You know what to do with this, right? You yeah. Know? It's a feather in your cap. Don't worry. Okay, that's great. for sure. All right. Yeah. I'll trust you guys. Yeah. It's like all right, we'll dive into Moxie real quickly. It's it's like I think swagger is a good one. It's like your finesse, but like confidence a little bit with it. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not even like, you know, um, it's a, a lot of really great salespeople have moxie in it. Like they're just like, it's a little bit to go with charisma yeah. a little bit. Charisma adds spunk. I like that. Yeah, that's a good way to put charisma it. Charisma plus spunk. That sounds good. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, it's a feather in your cap. Put it in there. So yeah. Okay. So you now are both married and the business is not here because we've sold it to Geek Squad then. Well, we we merged in with the Geek Squad. It was called Network Techies Task Force, I think. So it was quite a mouthful. Names yeah. just got worse. Yeah, they got worse. <laughs> yeah. So then to manage the merger of all these things, we renamed it Techies Outsourced IT so that it was like 
just and then nix the logo. It was just not the right answer. No. Uh-huh. But yeah, so we worked there for a couple of years and then, or for, or for maybe it was like a, a year or so, and it, it was fine. We, we were still trying to move forward. And then Betsy was going to move to Chicago to do her master's degree. Yeah, I was going to grad school. So what were you, like, in, what were you getting into? In music. Okay. Yeah, I was teaching at the time as a high school band director. So I was moving to Chicago and he was going to stay in Minneapolis. And that lasted for a little bit. Yeah, I remember, I remember telling you, we'll pick what you want to do and then... And, you know, just whatever you think, if you need to move there, that's fine. It's the right answer. It's a good opportunity. And then you said you were going to move there. And then I just started bawling. It's just like, I take it back. I take it back. No, you can't. <laughs> and so about that same time, there was just different dynamics in that business that, that weren't working out. And so I kind of negotiated an option for me to be available to consult with them because I knew how everything was working in the three different companies and the CEO who it was an awkward relationship because I reported to him operationally, but then I was on the board and his boss, right? So oh weird. Yeah. Right. And so the basically I just knew how everything worked. Mm-hmm. And so I needed to be available for the organization. So but I also was gonna live in I was also gonna live in Chicago, wanted to live in Chicago Betsy, right? Yeah. And so I just basically set up this remote job where I was available to answer questions and kind of help them integrate the organizations and maybe and answer help desk calls from like seven till nine. So I could just roll out of bed when everybody else was sleeping and had, we did phone systems as well at that time. So I could just answer the phone remotely in Chicago and do my help test all before Zoom and everything existed. Yeah, it was before like that was normal. Quite a deal he had. And then we, then we ended, ended up exiting the business. They just bought me out. And, and eventually that business was sold to Loeffler in town here. Okay. So then you were, basically you got bought out again. So you sold another company. And how old are we here? I just yeah, want to keep, keep like this. entrepreneur, like real years and then entrepreneurial years and track here. So yeah. I think you're probably 27, 28. Yeah, it was only a year or two at that organization. We basically, our first merger was like a half valuation out in cash and mm-hmm. half in equity. And then we just said, let's just unwind the equity piece. So not sure it's an extra sale, just more of you guys do you. I, mean, I do want to like, we're going to just put another feather in your cap right now is like, by the time you're 27, you've gone through three acquisition S things and you're like, at least negotiating deals of you're like, I want this much in cash and like this much in equity. Like, let's just be very clear here. There's a majority of people that are like, I don't even know kind of like what you're talking about, you know, like, so yeah, I think that's, that's pretty impressive. I have to say for somebody that uh, at 16 was just like I'm just gonna go add some moxie and was like I'm gonna go sell these people these services that I don't quite know how they work but I know how to do them you don't actually know how to know how to no just do it yeah just do it yeah I'm just going to show up and do this. I'm going to sell this company. Okay. This reminds me of the conversation we had the coven where we're talking about time where they're like well we have 400 years of experience because it's like so much happens in such a short amount of time as an yeah. entrepreneur that you have this like, you have like a hundred years of experience now. An entrepreneur year is literally, it's like dog years. Yeah. It is like for every one entrepreneur year, year is like 10 years of experience. Totally. So yeah. It's like the rest of last week being like, I think I aged 10 years. Oh my God. I think I did. BFCM really came for me this year. But yeah. Okay. So now you sold the business and now both of you are in Chicago. Kind of. Kind of. Tell me more. You had a like kind of normal job. So while well, she was still in grad school, I then was anxious about, well, what's going to do next? I remember I'm still mm-hmm. not employable. What's going to happen? All these things. Because you're still a kid too at this point. Right. Yeah. Everybody's still older than me. And so I, one of my longtime IT customers from the very first business that really supported us through everything, they did uh, consulting for heavy industry, refineries, power plants, forgeries, coal mines, et cetera. 
And so I said, called up, I'm like, you know, I got nothing to do now. Can, can I work for you guys? It seems kind of cool. You fly around the world. Sometimes I go to Belgium and help them set up their computers and come back and whatever. And they're like, I don't know, you don't have any gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> that was literally. You've sold three companies, but you don't have gray hair. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah you got to understand you're going into these, these big bits. And so they, they were very kind and they put me on a project called Operation Canadian Crude. So it was a British petroleum. It was the largest capital project in the state of Indiana's history. And they were basically bringing in the tar sands that everybody's mad about now sometimes. But, but anyway, it was interesting to work there and learn about, and now I'm in this giant organization mm-hmm. and this huge, just a million people and all this structure. And we were on a safety project to try to kind of, I was the IT guy, but I learned about operational management, process flows, consulting. And I ended up feeling really, it was like organizational psychology. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you get everybody just to work together and inside right. of this giant corporate structure and this giant project? Mm-hmm. And so, so we did that for a long time. It was really interesting. I learned a ton of stuff. I never tried to pretend I knew anything about refineries. So mm-hmm. you know, they're bringing in these high price consultants. And so they expect you to know something. I was like, I don't know anything about how this works. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But I can try to help you. Yes, somehow. Was it very different for you at that point in time of having pretty much only started businesses to that point and then working inside of an organization? Was it like a big shift for you to kind of understand how to work in that completely different environment? Yeah, I was not a good employee. Like looking back, I I wish I had been able to kind of figure out that better because I think it would have been it would have been really nice to kind of work there and collaborate. There's a lot of people that I really care a lot about, but I know I wasn't. I was always trying to have ideas and do things and I was just out of place. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Cause that was what my next question was like, what made you a bad employee? So make what made you a bad employee was that you had ideas, you were trying to innovate and things like that within. Yeah, maybe just prematurely. Okay. Or I didn't like something that was happening. And I, since, I, since I was good friends and had worked for 10 years with the owners, then I would go around and complain to them when I shouldn't have. And, I, and so it was just like I'm complain. I mean, sometimes complain, sometimes try to, you know, I was trying to help, right? But yeah. it's problems. Yeah. And I just, I just wasn't a good employee. Okay. Yeah. I would have fired me. But when, like, he's been his own boss since he's 16, I yeah. don't think he ever learned how to work for anybody. I mean, anybody. I think that's, like, more of, like, an interesting thing. I think that's, like, why some people, like, I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, that's why we will never thrive in corporations is because it's, like, you see it and you're, like, they're, like, this is a system in a way. You're, like, yeah, but your system kind of sucks. Or, like, it could be 8,000 times better if you do it this way. It's Richard Branson. And he's always tried to really say, like, I try to keep all of my businesses more, like, speedboats than cruise ships because we should be able to make a decision and change and do something differently rather quickly like and if you make it a cruise ship like it takes forever to recalibrate it and like move around and I think that's where so many corporations get is like it has to go through this giant chain of people you're like I have this idea and then like 10 people have to sign off on it and it's one year later and now you're like well that doesn't it's not even applicable anymore well that's what makes me a really good partner for Betsy because she's in academia and and it's like totally compatible (laughs) yeah (laughs) also I feel it could, probably hits there too a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there, there are many times where I'm like, Jack, just be patient. We just got to work through the process. He's like, no, process. What? Just do it. I feel you there, Betsy. I came from like education. I was like, my previous one, I was like, this is, this is backwards, y'all. Like the progress here is, this is going to take for a long, long time. So yeah. Yep. Balance. Okay. So y'all were in Chicago. You know, and then how long were you both there for? Because we obviously know the story comes back here a little bit. Yeah, we lived out there for three years and he was consulting. So he'd be like gone wherever during the week and back on weekends. And it was great. It worked out really well. And then we, Jack, kind of just got a new bug. 
What was it? So I was traveling and reading all of the foodie propaganda books from, you know, Michael Pollan and Joel Sutton. Yeah. And one of the things Betsy and I love to do dating and, and married and not anymore because you don't have time and children, but we love to cook together and found that that was more enjoyable than going to a restaurant. We could make a better meal ourselves, mm-hmm. just getting food from the grocery and it was less expensive and we had more fun. And maybe because I was kind of a homebody and she probably wishes we went out more. But it was it was something we did together. And then I read these propaganda books and realized that, oh, I can get some lettuce from seed savers and planted in a planter box in our house. And this lettuce was like the best thing I've ever ate. And I don't really like lettuce because I grew up with with iceberg lettuce. I'm like, why would you eat this? And I'm like, wow, this is like, if I could just pick this lettuce and put it on a plate and maybe put some sea salt and eat it, it's like my favorite thing. Uh So what happened here? There has to be better tasting chicken, right? Oh yeah. Come on. There is. Yes. And so I was like, there just has to be. So I, we just said, decided, I was like, I'm just anxious about this consulting thing. I just want to quit and I don't want to, you know, don't want to work anymore. And we've already kind of had enough success. Betsy wants to work. She can work and pay the day-to-day bills and all my house. You know? mm-hmm. And so convinced her to move back to Minnesota and make a hobby farm so we could figure out what better tasting chicken would be like. Yeah. So the idea was I would teach and he would just have a hobby farm and like feed us and mm-hmm. maybe have a little bit of food for our friends, family. And Can that was it. Talk about the irony of the word hobby farm here for a second, oh, too. Hundred <laughs> percent. Like what the hell? Like I feel like it's uh, what is the word? It's like it's not real. Like the idea of like a farm being a hobby is like it's not never really a, a hobby. Yeah, isn't it like an oxymoron? Yeah, uh, yeah, like yeah, like the full time job uh, farm. Maybe, maybe it means that you just don't make any money. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but we were dumb enough; we didn't realize that. Uh huh. Because we knew nothing about farming. We didn't. Grow up okay, on so farms, like zero experience. Okay, so let me, okay. And first off, like what year is this? How old are, you know, I want to kind of go with the timeline here. We are now in 2007. And we, we moved back in 2008. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it's so 2000. The process, yeah. Yeah. So it's 2008. Y'all have, there's, so there's no farming whatsoever. We've just read some books from Michael Pollan. So 100%. I think I'm 40. Is that right? No, you're 30. Oh, yeah. 30. An you're entrepreneur 30 years, maybe. Oh, that's but, like yeah. a, wow. Yeah. No, you were only 30. And he's like, I am only, really, yeah, wow. really, really wants to do this. And I thought, well, I mean, he just put me through grad school and like moved to do this. So I can like give him a couple years of this. Yeah. I'll support him through this, I thought. But I was like, I'm thinking about this. I was like, you're an entrepreneur. And so I have this problem because I also like to cook and I like to, to hunt and, you know, get my own farm-raised meat and kill it. And I keep telling myself that don't make this a business because every time my brain goes there, I'm like, don't make this a business. But I think that that happened to you. You decided you're going to make this thing into a business because you're not just going to be on a hobby farm and live on your land and just toil away. You used a word there called decide, and that involves cognitive thinking. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. So good on you. Uh (laughs) I mean, so how did it escalate? Because it was like, where is this farm too? Okay. So it's in Montrose, Minnesota. So it's like 45 minutes west of Minneapolis and 23 acres, I think, and a house. And we bought this thing and I was like, we're going to go slow, okay? Because I'm not excited about this. Yeah. What, what's the makeup of this we got? What kind of animals we got? Well, but nothing at first. Okay. And then... So it's just plants at first. Yep. And then for my birthday, Jack's like, I'm going to get a couple chicks. And I'm thinking maybe five and we can learn something about animals. Yeah. Like we didn't even have pets. And then... A couple dozen. What, like 30 chicks showed up. I'm like, what is happening? Wait a minute. And also, did you say and this that was is for just your birthday? The start. 
Oh, yeah. 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 Uh-huh. 100%. Just a, a brood of chickens. Yeah. yeah. And then there were like sheep and a couple cows and things kept showing up. There were pigs. It was like Noah's Ark. And everybody who starts a farm like that, I tell them, do not make Noah's Ark on your farm. Just don't start with chickens. I mean, I, and like, they all do. What is the process of going and buying a cow? Do you just like roll up to somebody's farm and be like, do you have fat cows for sale? Craigslist had been invented <laughs> by then, so it's just on Craigslist. So I've, never, I've never been on Craigslist, let's be very clear, and been like cow for sale. Cow for sale. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you're telling a story. I, I have many friends right now who are starting their hobby farms right now. And it all just starts with like, we're just going to get six chickens for eggs. And then they all end up with 30 chickens. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, well... We need something else. Like, maybe we'll get goats or sheep. And they literally have sheep now. I was like, next year, it's going to be the pigs or it's going to be the cows. And, and it comes. It's coming. Big pigs are the best. Yeah. 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 Pigs are the best. No. So this so this time we have, haven't quite made it into business yet, right? And Still nope. a hobby farm at this point in time. No, no, it was a, yeah, it was a hobby farm. It wasn't a business, but then it was like, let's, let's try some different things. Like let's get three different breeds of chicken mm-hmm. and learn about raising each of them and then like do taste tests and like. So you don't have enough for taste tests. You have to have like a lot of chickens so you can mm-hmm. give those samples to all your friends right, and family and, and everything. Like do the real thing. Yeah, right. I didn't think it was that many. It was probably like 150 or something. Chickens? Maybe it was like 100 chickens. Yes. 150 chickens. I mean, it's better than 150 cows when you're starting off, right? No, yeah, yeah. that'd be too many okay. cows. That'd be too many cows. <laughs> 150 chickens is reasonable, but the 150 cows, like, that's insane. That's, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. We, we tasted it. It actually was pretty shocking. Like, we had three different breeds. You raise them all the same. And we, you know, growing up in the suburbs, had no idea about this. We did not hunt. Mm-hmm. So we were like, oh, now we need to turn these chickens into food. So we had to do that. And then... I mean, how did you learn to do that? Let's like not glaze over that here a little bit. Like, I mean, because is YouTube a thing? YouTube's barely a thing now. Books. So do you just like Book. books? Yeah. yeah. And you just... Figure it out? Yeah, you just get a knife. So what do you do with your... <laughs> Our ancestors figured it out. Yeah, yeah I mean, similarly. you do just get a knife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's sad. So, okay. We bought we bought a chicken scolder and plucker. Betsy really was excited when that showed up. I think that should have been her first warning sign of file for divorce today. Wait, so you were gonna it taste wasn't test for my birthday though, thankfully. You were gonna taste test the chicken's meat, not the eggs. Correct. Yeah. We had three different breeds to taste test the meat. Because yeah. you'd already done the egg. Yeah, we had we had the eggs at the same And you were like overwhelmed with eggs, I'm guessing. I don't know. We sold we were pretty easy to sell. Like But see, that's the thing, you just started selling the eggs. Yeah. So at just some like, point just you like had like the eggs. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We have a whole lot of egg stories, but the chickens, you taste them, you'd be like, okay, so this one breed and this next breed and this next breed, just try the, the breast meat. And they were all raised in the same cage, mm-hmm. all slaughtered the same day, everything exactly the same. It was dramatically different yeah. between them. None of them taste like anything you had in the grocery store and be like, wow, this one, the breast meat's really good. That one, the thighs are really good. Mm-hmm. It was shockingly different. Interesting. So walk me through, um, had you killed any animals before this? No. Okay. So- did you kind of fall in love with the animals first, and then you, did you have a hard time that first that first time you had to take one of your own own animals' lives? I think there's just a change that happens. It's pretty. Um, I think it's pretty important if 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 you are caring about the quality of the life of that animal. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's very differently raised. I mean, they're just out in their backyard having right. the time of their life, and now it, you know they can't live forever. Yeah, 100%. and so I think owning that yourself is pretty impactful. We had some friends, good friends, who were. Uh, vegetarian or vegans, and they came out to slaughter chickens and eat them because they felt like that was an important piece. That if if, right. if they're going to eat the meat, they need to own it, right? See, and that's where my that's where my journey with it started about four years ago. As I was like, I'm either going to become vegetarian or I got to start taking this thing in my own hands. Yeah, I think having that connection and being purposeful with meat is is pretty important. With the sheep, that was tough because those ones were more like pets. 
Yeah. And the first the first sheep we had, we just hung them up in the barn with Grandpa's twenty two. It's so yeah. It's yeah. never it's never easy. Now nah, that I feel was like the first pig that was, was hard. hard. It was tough. Yeah, we never never slaughtered pigs. It's like uh, yeah. they're like puppies. Yeah, it's they tough. are like puppies. But at some point, the it's interesting. I've noticed it's like well, you there's this point where they stop becoming a pet. It's like you have to look at them and. You know, you're kind of look tasty. Yeah, <laughs> it was shocking. Like I didn't expect that. Both in the same way. Oh, like, totally. Like, I know what you're talking I, about. I, I, I 1,000 percent met you before this. I was like, Andrew and Jack are going to have some moments right. here together where they're like speaking a common language that, like, I, I like I appreciate it. Like I very much. So that's how I became a customer, but I'm not quite there yet. So See, I yeah. remember my friend. Like, so I remember my friends when they got the piglets. And so I was going to help him butcher the pigs at the end of the year. He got the piglets. I remember being like, oh, they're so cute. I'm never going to be able to kill one of these things. And that's like slowly but surely, the older they got throughout the year, I was like, I'm just thinking about like, okay, we're going to do this. And after the first year, like it was hard the first time. But then the second year, as they got older, I kept thinking about all the, like how well they were filling out and how like what that's going to look like when we start butchering them. And like, but it's still being connected to them in a way where it's not like dehumanizing, but it's like still going there, giving them their treats, still petting them, making them feel, you know, loved and then just giving them the best last day they could have. Yeah, that best last day is pretty important, I think, whether it's just you're doing it yourself or finding a processor partner that you can trust. Right. All right. So I'm very curious because it sounds like it kind of started like like kind of like with most hobby farms, like I'm selling some eggs and then I'm like selling some of the meat then because it comes to a point where you're like, I cannot actually consume all of this, I'm guessing. Well, I think we just, I decided that we weren't making, again, the anxiety comes back. Yeah. So it's like, well, we don't make quite enough money to pay everything. And I'm buying all these tractors and stuff that are expensive. And I don't want to keep trash. So I'm still traveling to California every week, saddling Betsy with all of the animals. And Wait her- a minute. I thought that the California thing had taken a pause. Oh, that we had to keep yeah. paying for stuff. Yeah, no, he was still, he'd be gone during the week and home on weekends. And I'm working full time. So I was doing the animal stuff. Like during the week and he'd come back. And farmers are more expensive than people realize. Very, yeah. I, oh, was, yeah. I was very surprised. Yeah. 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 So, so at some point, it work. I yeah. decided, well, these chickens taste so good. Everybody is going to want chickens like this. And they're expensive chickens. So I was like, well, let's just make a little side business. I'm sure we can sell our chickens and I can do this. And Joel Salton's book says, you can farm. Yes, you can. <laughs> Everyone can farm. Yeah. And I believed him. And it was just all propaganda. So then, and because the, I think the system doesn't work. So this is what we learned in the last school of hard knocks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, I mean, we had a huge barn. We have family with lots of experience. So we were like building and like welding all of these chicken houses, like for layers and for hens and, you know, f- for the meat birds. And yeah, that second summer we decided to go in business and make a, make a CSA. So we have no customers and we figure we'll make it like a meat CSA. You pay us every month a hundred bucks and we'll drop off stuff. You know, it'll be really good tasting chicken. And we found some other farms you could buy pork from and everything and kind of make it a little bit of an aggregated CSA was what you'd call it. We didn't know that term prior at the time, but then and so we got 2,000 layer hens that first summer. And at that time, we had been not had children and they w- weren't coming. And, and all of a sudden, Betsy's pregnant. So now we have a, a business that we know nothing about, animals that we know very little about, babies, which we really don't know anything about <laughs> taking care of. And I'm working in California. Mm-hmm. And when is this? 2010? Yeah. Yeah, 11. And so in the winter, when Betsy was going to tell the stew story. Yeah, so he's in California working and I'm 
home doing all the farm and I'm working full time and I'm like nine months pregnant at this point in winter. Oh so it's like morning chores, afternoon chores. It's cold. It's winter. It's windy on the farm. Like my coats don't fit. Yeah. I can't wear like anything. Mm-hmm. And then we had this one turkey that had like had it out for me and he was mean. And turkeys have like their feet and their claws and then they have mm-hmm. this cock spur that's like oh. huge, sharp, like evil nail. And you're laughing at me already. So I would go out there to feed them, like take care of these things and give them water. So I'm like hugely pregnant and I'm carrying a bucket of feed and a bucket of water. And this dude would look at me and then he would run at me and they like jump up and put their feet up and try to get you with a cockspur and like okay. fly at you. And it was, it was not cool. So I named him Stu because that's what I wanted to make him into. Yeah. And then I would start going out with like a trash can lid as a shield. It was like My an gosh. Avenger. <laughs> and I'd have like a bucket of feed and a trash can lid and I'd like keep him in the trash can lid playing games while I'd feed everybody else and then go inside and call Jack and be like, you got to come home. Got to come home. <laughs> oh, I mean, let's be clear here. I don't, did it, I don't, were you really that cool under pressure, Betsy, that you were like, you just need to come home? I mean, I would have been like, this is, this is over. I'm like, I'm about literally to like, yeah. Re- remember, you know, the simmering all the time because you can just handle levels yeah. of anxiety and sometimes yeah. you said, got to put more on it. Like your capacity just raises the more you mm-hmm. have to do. Mm-hmm. That's he. She's being my. She's a rock star. Like yeah, I way smarter, way smarter than me. She's Betsy's Wonder Woman. Cool, I think right now. Yeah, under she's got the shield. Yeah, yeah. she's got the shield. I don't know, lady with a shield. Let me tell you, nine months pregnant. That's a journey in itself. Like yeah, that's when you really start feeling like an alien is growing inside of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's real. Yeah, it yeah. is real. Yeah, and that yeah. fucking turkey. <laughs> Do you still like turkey now? Yeah, no, he tasted great. Okay, good. I felt really good about that. Yeah. Jack labeled the bag so I would know it was him. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's... <laughs> yeah. That was the one thing I could do for her. Okay, so like you are coming home and this is like, were you like, you just put in your two weeks or what happened? Well, no, like we started the the initial, this is just going to be an on the side thing. We had maybe 50 customers. Yeah, so we started off, uh, we had a couple of key support. We had one, France 44 is a, a nice wine and cheese shop mm-hmm. in town, and they had been one of our IT customers for a long time. And so I reached out to the owner there, and he was willing to support us in terms of just marketing to their customers for our CSA. So we did a pickup at ah. France 44 for several years. So we had probably a quarter or a third of that initial customer that signed up on a whim, like, sure, I'll pay you a hundred bucks and sign up for this stuff. And, you know, we had tons of product that was just in the freezer mm-hmm. that we had raised without having customers right so we had to raise it first before we could supply and demand it's a tricky tricky balance here yeah, so yeah and my cousin was at general mills and there they had like an environmental employee club and so they also marketed to the gmi office so we delivered at gmi we delivered to france 44 and we found other random customers through just word of mouth or going to like kind of little um, like a garden trade show kind of things and then it kind of was a word of mouth type of deal. So we picked, dropped off at people's houses once a month. And so we started off with, you know, like a hundred customers that signed up. We're like, okay, that's about how many we need with my fancy spreadsheet that solves all the problems and doesn't tell you what's really going to happen. And then it was like, oh, well, I got this meet and I got these random things that I didn't know I was going to get. I didn't quite understand what they signed up for. So like Ooh. half of them all quit right then. And they were like, oh my gosh. But you got to back up. Like, okay, we have these people and we've told them this day, we're going to bring all this food to you. Oh Yeah. And we had to figure out logistics to do that. So Jack and my dad built this like weird cooler that would like slide into the back of the pickup truck. Uh-huh. And 
there was a generator that hung off the side of the pickup truck and like everyone driving by is looking like, what the hell is that thing? The chicken truck. Yeah. It got done like the day before delivery. And then the morning when we have to deliver all this food, we're like, well, we have to like figure this out and package it up. So our whole living room floor is filled Mm -hmm. with like frozen food and shifts so it doesn't thaw and we're packaging boxes and trying to weigh it to make it all even and yeah, new logistics background. Oh, like, this sounds exactly right for like the first time you ship things. It was yes. awful. Yeah. yeah. It was awful. Somehow we did it. We were only like maybe an hour late. I still have your like stop. little notes that you helped plan it out. There's like a little notepad piece of paper. It's like, okay, at 3 a.m. we're going to get up and then we're going to do this and then we're going to do this and then I drive all day and drop off and then come home. It was, it was insane. It was, <laughs> we were way in over our heads. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so what kind of red tape is involved at this point? Did you like... Yeah, so we, in order to, the processors often won't cut up chickens for you because they just don't have the labor. And so we got, had to get a butcher's license and work out of a commercial kitchen. And Kielsen Sharp was a chef at, he, an owner at Terra Waconia. I don't know if you remember that, but it's a small, really like a farm to table restaurant, super idealistic, fantastic little place. And and it's closed now, but he let us use their kitchen on Sunday and kind of taught us how to butcher. And we cut up all the chickens when they yeah. process and made that. And so we, we work with the Minnesota Department of Agriculture and they've been fantastic. I've worked with um, regulators in many different areas. And it is, I really find that if you're just like, I need some help. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me what I should be doing, then they will help you. So they yes. were super helpful in getting us on board and how to do this in the right way. And most people do not ask them for help and just kind of break all the food code laws. And right. Yeah. And so they just said, here's what you can do. And they really were instrumental in just guiding us and preventing giant mistakes I would have made on my own. And so we, yeah, we did have a license and then our delivery vehicle was covered under that, that food handler license. Yeah. I think that's one thing a lot of entrepreneurs forget to do because we're always, uh, we typically just kind of headstrong and we go do things, but I think, and we're afraid of regulation sometimes, but realistically, if you call the IRS and ask them things, like they will sit down and talk to you for, I talked to somebody for like two hours once about everything I need to know as a business for, from like the IRS or if, uh, from like contra or um, the, like, um, what am I trying to think? Inspectors. If you call them, they'll tell you everything that they're looking for that, so that you can basically pass the test. Yeah. They're, and various people, they don't they want to punish you. Yeah. No, it's like the worst thing. But yeah, if they call you, that's not the right thing. You want to call them. Mm -hmm. So we did have that license and we kind of had a lot of learning every single year. I would say, well, we're going to change the customers. This didn't work for the customer. This needs to be changed. This needs to be changed. I would completely revamp the whole thing. Okay. This year, it's all going to work better. Our new CSA is going to be this way and people can customize it that way. Or our order system is going to be this way. And every year I'd be like, okay, this is this whole like QM digging is just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but it'll be better next year. Mm-hmm. And we revamp the whole thing. But this, I'm not going to change it again because that was too much work. And then the next year we would change it again. Mm-hmm. But a lot of things did get easier. Like we learned a lot more about the animals and how to care for everything. Mm-hmm. And, right. you know, like that all became not the front end of the learning curve, which is helpful. Kind of a big change for us was, I don't know how many years it was in, but we had our, our laying hens were um, animal welfare approved. It's an external welfare certification. Mm-hmm. It's like make sure they're taken care of really well and all these little tiny details. And and one of, there's a local grower in town that was at a farmer's market who called and said, hey, I'm kind of thinking about doing this certification. Could I come out and visit with you? And, you know, and, and they're struggling with trying to make the farmer's market work because farmer's markets are generally not a good deal for farmers. And so when in the talking with them, we developed a kind of a relationship trying to support each other through that. And at one point, Betsy and I, we had so many eggs raising. We had probably 30 dozen eggs a day that you need to hand collect, wash, and candle, which means you put them up with a flashlight and look for any defects, cracks, or anything inside of it that's not right. 
So you're handling these eggs like a million times manually. Mm. Every night we'd spend, what, an hour plus? Oh, at least. Yeah, together basically cleaning, candling, sanitizing the eggs and putting them in cartons and then putting them back in that giant cooler that Betsy's dad helped us build. And, And at some point we're just like, we just can't keep doing this. But I felt too guilty to stop the eggs. Yeah. The, no, you can't buy eggs like this. I know that now you can buy these, quote, pasture-raised eggs in the grocery, but none of them are pasture-raised. It's just like a fake label. They have, right. They don't get me started. Yeah. It. yeah, it's not real. It's just a fake. It means nothing. It's like all natural. It doesn't mean anything. And in practice. And so I was like, but I can't, we can't just stop doing the eggs because there's nowhere else people can get these super special eggs. And so I said, well, we're just going to raise the price so that only people who actually care about the eggs will buy them. And then our life won't suck raising all these eggs. So we raised the eggs to such an exorbitant amount. We're like, okay, they're $5 a dozen now. We'll make them six seventy-five, And hopefully like everyone will quit buying eggs. That was literally the goal. And nobody quit buying eggs. No, they're like, oh, it's just a dollar more. Yeah. There's $1.75 more. Yeah. $1.75 more. Perceived yeah. value. Like, oh, they're, they're more valuable now. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. It was like it was like a 10% drop on a, like, your margin, would, would the margin go up on that by, like, probably, like, 5,000% because yeah. we mm-hmm. made no money on them. But that opened up the door, and, and this friend who was caulking with us about the eggs, we realized, well, now we didn't solve our problem. We still have all these customers that are buying eggs, and we're still candling all of these eggs every single day. And if you skip a day off, the next day is, like, brutal, right? Mm-hmm. And so... We talked with them and said, well, now we have this extra money. What if we pay you kind of what you were charging retail for your eggs almost, and we'll take the extra dollar seventy-five or $2 or whatever and deliver the eggs. Mm-hmm. And then, then you can focus on your thing and we'll focus on our thing and together it'll work better. So we, so we started building a community of everybody does their own things. And at first, when they took that over, how did you feel? Liberated. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was amazing. But one of the things that I noticed was that when I eat you know, our TC farm eggs, and it was True Cost Farm at the time, I, our True Cost Farm eggs, I really was uncomfortable because they weren't our chickens. Interesting. Yeah, I was like, these, I know they're doing a great job and I'm happy to like deliver their eggs for customers, but there was just something like wrong inside of me about it, it was someone else's eggs. Cheers. Right. And, and then over time, I realized that they're doing a way better job raising chickens than I could do because you know what they're doing? raising chickens they're not trying to run a business they're not trying to do eight thousand right. things they're not taking they're not going at some point they aren't going to the farmer's market anymore they could focus on doing a good job about what we were mutually passionate about <laughs> wow i could never do that good of a job taking care of my hens and then that was like a turning point where i realized as a group as a group of local people trying to raise better food we need to collaborate more it can't be just me and my crazy ideas, like you can't survive as an independent farmer. Joel Zalt is wrong. You cannot farm by yourself unless you have droves of free interns who come to you to work for free on your farm, right? Yeah. Or a giant family. Or a giant family that you, Which, yeah, indenture servants of your yeah, kids, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which for you guys at that point was like 10 years away still. Yeah. Yeah. No, that babies do not help. No, uh-huh. they they are the opposite of help. Yeah. yeah, it was really cute though. Yeah. yeah, but this is where we realized that Jack's background in business yeah. is an asset that he could bring. Like we were not farmers; we were learning it. But mm-hmm. he did get business and running things. So if he could like bring that and lean in, we can help other people who do like bring the farming expertise, like these folks. They could do that. He could do this, and it's all symbiotic. Mm-hmm. So at this point in time, the business model is really, I mean, are we still doing the CSA kind of like the, co- so it's like the eggs and then this like cooperative like CSA that has like the meats and everything too as well. Pretty much just meats and meat and eggs. Meat and eggs. Yep. It's frozen once a month delivery. Obviously the eggs aren't frozen, but 
once a month delivery, super inconvenient, high barrier for a customer to join. They got to sign up on this weird web page and uh-huh. stuff's just going to show up. We had, a, I built a, I'm really, I really love Excel. My favorite thing would be if I could have a job would be just to sit around and make Excel spreadsheets. That would be my favorite life. <laughs> yeah, it's like my best life. It's yeah. your retirement plan. Actually, my dream job is to be like Miss Excel on TikTok. Yeah. But I am not a fun, happy 20-something-year-old woman. So I didn't. that was like a missed opportunity for me. Yeah. But she's great. If you haven't looked it up, look at Miss Excel. Just yeah. yet. Not yet. Yeah. Yeah. Someday. Not yet. Not yet. Uh, but I built this giant Excel spreadsheet that managed all of the customers' subscriptions and orders and basically tried to do customization. So it was super manual. But if someone didn't want pork chops or or whatever, now they could put that in as a special request. We printed off these little tags. And I have one of my favorite pictures of this time was, you know, once a month, we'd go in and work at a big facility. They let us operate out their dock. And Betsy's pregnant again with Sean and pregnant with the coveralls in the cooler and has picking out the orders of pallets in this giant warehouse to pick the meat for everybody based on whatever their customizations were on my mm-hmm. tags. But it's still once a month, it's hard for customers to join. And it, we really just had a super passionate following, people that legitimately cared about what we did because yeah. it was not convenient. Right. They had to make an effort to try to get better food for their family. And and we were, you know, it was a good connection with the customers and with the farmers. I viewed it more as a like a cooperative between the members and the farmers to try mm-hmm. to make something different possible. Mm-hmm. So at this point in time, is it really like, are you just making ends meet? Like, is it a break even business? We we put a few hundred thousand dollars into the business. And so my salary was to pay back that loan Yeah, for like, I don't know, four or five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we, but the business has always been profitable because we kind of had to. Yeah. 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 And then I guess I'm just really curious, like, it sounds like you were kind of perpetually in the hamster wheel of just like always in the business and never on. Like, were you ever at a point being like, I'm going to grow this and this is how I'm going to do it? Or was it really what you were saying that every year you're like, we're just going to baseline and then you're like, "Mm, I'm going to make this couple tweaks and modifications? I think until recently, maybe like as in post-pandemic, I never really had a clear vision of what it was. I just wanted better food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the business was just a way to make it possible because I knew that I couldn't go to the farmer's market and find that kind of quality food. I couldn't go to the grocery store and I was super obsessive compulsive about having it. So yeah. the business was just a way to make it possible to get better food for me. I'm all about number one here. Yeah. And <laughs> I disagree. In the beginning, you that was my also goal. like... Oh my gosh, there's these other people that we can like provide this to and they care too. And then I think you felt like a great responsibility. Correct. Once once I kind of made that connection, you're correct. It's absolutely correct. But like my impetus. But it starts with you. I mean, I think that's the thing with a lot of people is they have a good idea. They want to serve themselves for something. But then they were like, how do I share this with other people? Because right. I get this feeling. Other people should have this feeling. Correct. Yeah, it was at Betsy's Betsy's more accurate than what happened there. Like I started off of, I always want better tasting chicken. But then when we realized that this was really different and there was a community that was also passionate about it, then we did feel that responsibility. Like with the eggs, like we wanted to quit, but I just felt too guilty if we just stopped doing the eggs. Yeah. But there's a network of hobby farms, essentially. Essentially, that's what happened. Some of our bigger, you know, like, and at one point what happened was a local co-op called and said, how come we can't get meat that isn't basically factory raised. Mm-hmm. We have all these, like, if everything they're buying is from distribution and it's not really free range, it's they just, they acknowledge it like this is all just fake marketing. Yeah. And how come we can't fix that? And I think I said, well, because the system doesn't work that way and you're the whole retail system is not designed to support this. And then they agreed to pursue 
a basically a, a path. I signed a five-year agreement to buy. I said pork was really the best product. Yeah. We can raise pork outside mm-hmm. on green pasture with a transition organic feed. And with a we provide a um, different kind of feed for the pork. Instead of just corn soy, they have like a broad, small grain diet. There's barley and peas and mm-hmm. lots of forage. And so they have their their digestive system is similar to humans. And when you feed them like a broad-based diet, they are way healthier. Yeah. Like it's dramatic difference in their even their temperament is completely different. They're just not uncomfortable all the time. So they're happy, pleasant animals. And if you give them corn soy, they're aggressive and not comfortable. That was the one difference. One year, the friend of mine, he was feeding them one feed and then the next year he had the corn and the the feed because he's like, oh, they said this is fine too. And those pigs were wild pigs. It's completely different. The difference between harvesting them was a process. Yep. Just couldn't call Their them digestion down. doesn't work. Right. They're upset. It is shocking. And the, and it's not that much more expensive. It adds an extra, it takes an extra month or so to raise them. So you have that capital expense and time. Probably adds about a dollar a pound retail. Yeah. But the flavor and the health and yeah. the welfare of that animal is dramatically different. So we told them, look, we can be fairly competitive with pork. And they, we did a five-year agreement with them. And I learned a lot about retail there. So then, then one of our farmers that we worked with, he kind of leaned in to... Mm-hmm. Build raising pork. In fact, he didn't. He grew up on a farm. Never wanted to raise pork because he's like they're vile and rank. And he kind of lived mm. in a CAFO area and was mm-hmm. just like this is awful. They're just bad animals. And he raised chickens for us actually at the time. And he was like, well, you know, you have to this pork. And he's like, wow, these are so different. This is super fun. They're enjoyable animals. I love raising them. And it was just like such a mind shift. Change. Should we give them the space to run around? If you oh, yeah, they're outside. See them. If you right. seen that, I don't know if you watched the video on our webpage that um, Jennifer made for us. But yeah, they're just out there in 15 acres, and nobody raises pigs outside. Right, like, and they have nobody like, they, like make their little trails and stuff, and they're like rutting around. Yeah, we are one of the only people in the state of any scale that's that's doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a couple other great farmers too, but it's not. There's a very small number. Yeah. in the state. Yeah, and so we we worked with the co- with that local co-op, and we found that the system for as a grocery store just doesn't work. So over time, I realized that the grocery model it doesn't matter how good your ideas are, ideals are, or your intentions. Physical grocery store does not work for local food. Mm-hmm. And when we went in there, they had, you know, the sign up on the wall of a local farmer where the pork was from and they do great work. It's not the same as ours, but they really do great mm-hmm. work. But they were only buying a tiny fraction, like maybe 5% of their pork from that farm. Yeah. And the rest of it was from just a regular confinement operation in Iowa. And there's <laughs> no, the consumer has no idea that everything's labeled exactly the same. There's a picture of that farmer there. They literally lost money on that pork from the local farmer, but what they got was a poster. And then they right. overcharged basically the same product you could have got at Costco. And there's also the, I think this is something I think a lot of people don't realize, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure there's the, the USDA value-added labeling, where essentially we can import beef or pork from other countries as a whole animal, but if we bring it here and we cut it up, we can say product to the USA on it. Correct. Yeah. And the product USA doesn't mean what consumers rate. And then there's that 5% thing where they can be importing that, all that pork and that beef from other countries, labeling it product to the USA, but then they can also have that 5% that they're getting from a local person and saying that it's technically local, local because they're mixing the local meat into the ground, the rest of the other ground meat. And some of that maybe is like intentional, but my experience was that the people on the ground really did want to make move yeah. the needle, right? Yeah. And right. they had their intentions in the right place, but a grocery store doesn't work. So no. a farmer is not going to bring you half a pig every day. Yeah. A broadliner is going to bring you your case of pork chops every day. 
Right. And if you are a farmer trying to sell cucumbers and you're like, oh, I'm I'm, gonna, I'm, a, I'm a local grocery store, I'm going to really sell local, I'm going to support my local farmers, but you can store one or two cases of cucumbers in your store because all of your store needs to be retail. Mm-hmm. You know what that local farmer is not going to do? Drive around to 15 little co-ops and drop off a case of cucumbers every day. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's not going to happen. So the yeah. business model and the physical layout of a grocery store is incongruent with meeting the missions of trying to support local or better raised foods. It's right. just like not possible. It's not because they're trying to be deceptive like in the example you're saying, mm-hmm. they're just, it's just not possible to do what they want to do. And, right. and so we started thinking about, this is a little bit post-pandemic, but started thinking about how do we solve the problem? And the answer is kind of to lean into that collective, that collective group. Mm-hmm. And if you have all these independent farmers who can provide more value to their consumers, we can effectively compete with mm-hmm. Walmart and Whole Foods and and lean in and make that a better business model. So that's, I'm getting a little ahead of myself there, but that's kind of where that thinking evolved to. So at what point did you decide that you were like, I'm going to kind of start scaling this because it's really kind of the business has like morphed in like the products and the offerings that you provide. All of this is like kind of pre-pandemic. Like at what point in time where we were like, we're going to really start kind of pooling all of this together? We kept trying to grow, but it just didn't. Our model and the access we had to infrastructure, like it's very difficult to get access to, for example, to cold storage. Your mm-hmm. recent podcast talking about you had a guest who really liked to build their net before they jumped. And I, my analogy was always, I felt like a, I was a like a frog on a lily pad over a bed of lava. And I just, and the, and the one I was on was sinking and I had to jump. <laughs> yes. You know, and there was, it didn't, I didn't have time to build the new net or lily pad. You just had to jump. Uh-huh. And so that for us, one of the, one of the many things of that was just cold storage. So Midwest has the lowest cold storage capacity per capita in the country. There's just huh. nowhere to put your product. At some point, you know, pre-pandemic, we went, in, we went into the pandemic with $700,000 of meat in a freezer. And we had, um, we had already been kicked out of multiple spaces. So here we are with a personal, massive personal risk. How do you, like, wait, uh, well, what, how are you getting kicked out of spaces? I feel like if you're like, I have money to rent said space, like, isn't that the nobody deal? Nobody cares. Nobody wants you there. Well, the reason we and got kicked out of- what we do is weird. Because we would go into these cold storage spaces and we would like keep all the frozen stuff there. And then once a month, we would have to bring in a team of like us and like other employees and volunteers to put everything out all over the floor of this poor person's facility and mm. then like package up all the individual boxes and take a whole day and use up their whole space to do this. Uh-huh. And it just didn't fit the model of how cold storage works. The whole point of cold storage is to move truckloads in and out of Arby's fries. Yes. Ah. Nobody, nobody wants to deal with a pallet. They want to deal with truckloads and truckloads and truckloads in and out every day because they get 10 bucks every time it comes in and out or 20 bucks or whatever. Having pallets just sit in storage doesn't work and they have zero extra capacity, so they don't need us. People have just basically let us come and use their facilities to be nice mm. because we were nice and asked them to. And or they, we, we asked them nicely and they agreed. That yeah. was really what it was. Yeah, they, we were not nice. We were just begging. <laughs> Please. So we, the first place we were kicked out of, we, we were working in a facility and the the insurance inspector walked through and they were like, who are those guys? Because we're just sitting on the ground, like Betsy said. And then the next day they're like, yep, you are out of this big facility and yep, done. And we have nowhere to go. What was the reason? Just because the inspector's like, we don't know who you are. You're some random person on the floor. You might get hit with a fork tr- forklift. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, we don't know who you are. Insurance is weird. Yeah. Let's yeah. just be. And nobody yeah. cares about us. Basically, yeah. basically, somebody higher up found out that we were there and the people that were being nice letting us have an account were overruled. That's basically right. what happened. Nobody yeah. told me that, but that's pretty obvious what happened. And so then we, fortunately, we were able to move to another space and they, I don't even know how that happened exactly, but they took us in and 
the catch was they were going to do all that handling. They did not want us to do it. So it kind of changed our workflow uh, for the better. And at that point in the business, this pre-pandemic as well, we, we didn't even handle anything. We actually ended up with not having a food handler license because we were physically not touching anything anymore. We weren't storing everything. Everything kind of came in these boxes. Okay. And a courier company that everybody was licensed along the way. And we were just like organizing the group, sure. like, you know, as a collective. And so I called the state and it was like, yeah, I'm fine to pay my 200 bucks for this license, but should, this doesn't seem like the right license. I'm not a butcher anymore. What yeah. should I have? And they're like, oh, just cancel that. So, okay. And then pandemic happened and we were in that new facility and it, everything blew up and we had a million orders. We went into it worried we weren't going to sell all of our stuff because we had, like I said, seven hundred thousand yeah. dollars of product, and sales were just not. They were increasing, but not increasing. The um, that co-op had canceled their account because basically, like, we want to make more profit, and mm -hmm. our mission might be great, but we really just want more profit, basically. Mm -hmm. And so now we had to kind of deal with that ramification. We had just all this food, and so I don't even know how to describe that period of time. It was insane. We had Pandemic. tons of orders. Well, yeah, I mean, business just shut up because we're yeah. delivering food, right? Because like before the pandemic like how were you really fine was it just word of mouth marketing pretty much mostly we were growing between the end of given year 10 to 25 percent a year mm -hmm. yeah i mean to like set the stage it's like march of 2020 like the world was shutting down and like i mean let's all remember like the grocery store scene was like empty, you, empty. like i remember buying pasta that i've never bought before i was like what never purchased red lentil pasta before. Let's give this a whirl and see what this right. is all about. I remember about. my wife sent me a picture of like the meat, meat section at the, at like, I think it was Aldi or something. And there was like one package and I asked her, I was like, what was wrong with that one? That one package of chicken. She's like, it was open. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Oh. I was like, I was surprised so nobody took it, but it was literally just empty. And I was like, huh, that's weird. Well, we had like a hundred pallets of food. Yeah, I right, also so you had, had like almost a million dollars worth of inventory sitting in cold storage. Just but waiting. then we ended up with a huge wait list of people because we contract with farmers. Like, mm -hmm. you know, the food yeah. that was going to arrive for us summer of 2020 was already being raised and already figured yeah. out. And we only yeah. had so much. So we just started running a big wait list. And that would have been that we should have just kept that business forever, the wait list business, because we didn't want just email address because we if we were going to commit to having food for them in a year, you know, for we we had to commit make commitments like two years in advance of how much chickens we think we're going to raise and how many right. eggs we're going to have. We can't have people like ordering eggs and stopping ordering eggs. We're like, right. well, we need to know that you're not just an email address. We took a twenty dollar deposit, I think, yep. and we were getting like a thousand dollars a day in waitlist fees. So wow. we we're like, wow, we should just do that business. A waitlist fee business seems really <laughs> like. <laughs> no, that's a good cash flow uh, solution. It though. was helpful. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, we worked really hard to then accommodate those members and yeah. we will quickly have, you know, maybe it wasn't the TC farm meat, but we had access to other meat and we could provide that to people and we'd kind of differentiate what it was at that time. There's kind of an in-between period. And I don't know how long it took, but we added most, most everybody in, you know, by the end of that summer. I know you did because I was one of those people because I was somebody that found out about your business during that pandemic time. And I was like, and I paid my $20. And then I think it was like a couple of months later, I think I was like pissy for a hot second because my friend was really enjoying these great brats. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, I want this great brat. That's like how she wooed me in yep. and everything. Did she, did she order and, and sneak it to you on the side? No, I think she just honestly told me about these great brats. And I was like, well, I'm fine. I want this great brought mm -hmm. them too. Were you though, like, I mean, because you were bringing people up and like you said though, like these animals were being raised. So like, you're very much so like, this sounds like a logistical nightmare a little bit. Like, were you trying to just bring on any farm? Were you like a networking farms and being like, are you interested in being kind of part of our program? And then also like the customer side of it, like it's kind of like these like kind of two things that need to be managed at the same time. It seems like to me, is that true? On the supply side, 
we actually really had no issue with it because the business model for independent farmers, whether it's a farmer's market mm-hmm. or however they're doing it, trying to sell a grocery store, it does not work. So you, the entire local food system is basically propped up by independent people with a passion who care about what they're doing, sacrificing their lifestyle and their finances to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. Like 100%, almost nobody is has a viable, stable business on their own as an independent farmer. It's just them working extra hours for mm-hmm. free to make it work. And so we constantly are, have calls from people who are pretty idealistic that want to join our group. And it's more about us being picky of who, who we're willing to be part of that TC Farm brand. Mm-hmm. And at pandemic, we were we would differentiate, you know, the, hey, we can bring this meat in, but it doesn't meet our standards, but it's something, right? So mm-hmm. you can order it if you want. Right. And so that was kind of a little tiny period of time where we, we allowed that. But, but yeah, the supply side is more just about us knowing how much product to have and the challenge of ban- balancing that into the future. But with pandemic, we went into it with this huge surplus of product and we were also were very seasonal in nature. So in the summertime, you know, we try to harvest everything, especially chickens, mm-hmm. have a shorter life over green pasture on the summer outside. So you don't really harvest meat chickens in January. So we effectively double our per- our harvesting over our demand and build up our inventory over the summer to get to have enough through the winter. Okay. So we went into pandemic with a bunch of extra product. Demand went two or three times right during that that spring. But then we knew that in the summer our supply would also be two or three times. So we knew we we would get through that time. So we were very fortunate. We were actually working our logistics were working ahead for okay, how can we have hogs now for November? So I was always six months ahead mm-hmm. in supply provisions. Like how can how can our farmer make sure we now have more chickens starting in the fall or more pork or more beef that, that we wouldn't have otherwise harvested for our group? And we just basically extended that harvest season yeah. to maintain that, that consistent supply. So the timing for us was ideal. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, what happened then we were also a monthly pickup. So everybody would go into someone's backyard or their front, their alleyway or wherever and pick up their set of boxes from a giant, huge cooler. Yeah. And there were maybe sometimes six coolers taking up. I don't know how everybody stored this stuff in their garages, but... Thank you, host families. Yes. Yeah. They basically <laughs> bore the brunt of that for sure. And so at this time, there was all of the George Floyd and mm-hmm. people, you know, burning and we're like, well, we cannot deliver. There's all these new customers who have never picked up before mm-hmm. going into some random person's house in the alleyway. Well, there's dumpsters and police stations burning. Right. Like this sounds like a really bad idea. And they're going to go to the wrong person's house. Right. And so we, I mean, logistically, it was just hard to get around at that. Well, we, we could get there, but I was just concerned for random people that had never been to this person's yeah. house going into the wrong alleyway backyard. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure. Right. At night. Yeah. yeah. You know, and so we were like, we just canceled all the pickup sites anywhere near the city core. And on the fly was like, we're just dropping off at your house. Everybody's getting charged 10 bucks. We'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. And and so that was a logistical nightmare because we had never done that before oh, at sure. all. So how many trucks did you rent? We had a courier. So the courier did a lot of those deliveries, but we had to figure out how do you route all those people? I had no oh, idea. Oh my God. Because yeah. our routes were all static. We're going to your house for the host family, then to your house, then we're going to France 44 or whatever. Right. Right. Like it was all static. And then when we we did that, it was just a lot at once. And then we had to have individual coolers. So we got a semi load of styrofoam coolers delivered to this place and we want everybody to return them. And we still actually have now still those some of those styrofoam coolers people oh, have returned funny. and reused for over the years. And and we now we just do only do home delivery. So we went through that period of time. And that's that pandemic got us that, you know, organizational logistical muscle to to be able to do home deliveries. 
And then we knew that logistically we needed to be able to do weekly deliveries. Oh, we were also kicked out of our cold storage space at that time. Okay. Oh, well, we're kicked out of another cold storage Correct. space at this time. Yeah. So we moved into a space that was a caterer and like a distribution business. So they were empty, not doing anything. Ah. Is cold storage still a problem now? Yeah. Okay. It's a huge problem. <laughs> I can see Andrew on the side being like, I feel like I might want to start a business. No, in cold it's funny because I'm currently, we were dealing with some cold storage issues this last, like a few weeks ago, because we're harvesting these elk. There's an elk farmer up by us and uh, we didn't, it was like 60 degrees when it should have been 40. And we're like, I need a cold storage. I like my friend's flower farm has cold storage, but it's like, well, we don't, can't do that. And I'm thinking there needs to be somewhere where I can just rent literally a trailer that's cold that, or that has like a little cooler in it for just cold storage for all of the people harvesting elk when it's 60 degrees. Right. Or deer. I think about that. It's like, like a big market. Every neighborhood needs a place during hunting season to hang the deer in somewhere that's got stable cold. You know, it's yeah, like pretty, for deer, you pretty much depend on it being frozen outside, right? Yeah, 100%. Ugh. But the, yeah, there's a whole whatever. Yeah. Let's just say. It's like, but then in the, like that weather, you have it like goes up to like 50 and then down to 32 and it's like frozen, thawed, frozen, thawed. And over five days doing that, the quality of the meat goes substantially down. Correct. Really, really you just want like that 30, 30 for like five days for the, for the deer. You could wet age that deer. What do you mean? So if you... Any of the meat, so if you go to the grocery store and you buy like a packaged ground, yeah, yeah. ground beef, they basically process the animal and within an hour- They hot it, butcher it. Basically. Yeah, it's hot. Yeah, right. It's all put into a pack and then it's cooled down and then it's, the meat is actually purple and they flush it with carbon monoxide so yeah, that yeah, it yeah. turns red. And all of the, the meat packages are filled with phthalates because it's the only way for, for that carbon monoxide to get through the plastic. So it's like super toxic mm. plastic in, the, in that. But then it has like a 60-day shelf life. You go to the grocery store, if you figure out the dates on it, it'll be like, oh, this ground pork was, was processed. 40 days ago and been, quote, fresh. So that's what aging, but they, you don't, you know, you're kind of this face where you're like, I don't no, want to do like, my deer. Yeah, no, but I'm just imagining, <laughs> like, I'm imagining, like, hot butchering anything. Like, you could cool it down. So you, yeah, cool, yeah. you cool your deer, yeah, it'd be too hard to do. But you cool it down, then you can butcher it. And then if you just vacuum seal, like, those loins or the pieces that you want aged and put them in a fridge, they will age inside, like, as, as a primal. Yeah, yeah. And then they will... Well, that's how almost all of your steaks in the grocery store are done. Mm-hmm. They, they have it hot butchered. It sits in that, that ribeye primal or whatever is sitting in a one. Oh, there's so much plastic on the back end of the grocery store. It's insane. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. So they open package your clothes. They put it back in your package. It's like your, your consumer packaging is like not the problem. And so they, that's what you could do with your deer. So then it would be you keeping your fridge as a primal. Then you take it out when, you're, when it's tender enough and you can cut your steaks and then package okay. them. And you could leave it in that for two months in a, in a primal package like that. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. That's good to know. So those of you who want to know about butchering deer. So. No, I should, because we were trying to figure it out. And like, I only know just the part where you hang it, you hang it. And that's like as far as I was able to like figure it out. But it would have been much easier just to be like, I can just cut this down, vacuum seal it, stick it in my fridge, take it out, and then cut all the steaks up later. Correct. Need yeah. to be vacuum so You can't just put in like butcher paper. Yeah, we have a vacuum sealer. Yeah which I've been through several now through like, I feel like I get like three animals out of like your food saver brand. Okay, you, okay, sorry, Larissa. Yeah. She's like, why are you guys talking about deer? I'm Nora, I'm just like, I'm trying to hold this spot. I was like, okay, we're now through the third cold storage space in the, pan- <laughs> in the panda. I just am like trying to like, I'm just making a, yeah, uh, keep uh, the narrative. Yeah, yes. I'm just trying to make a key mark so we can go back to the story now. Okay, two seconds. He yeah. needs to get a chamber vacuum sealer. That's what, yeah, I do need a chamber vacuum sealer. I know I need that. That's like on my bucket list. All right. Once this one dies, we're getting the chamber (laughs) vacuum sealer. 
All right, Larissa, where were we? <laughs> yeah, where were we? Uh, last cold storage. <laughs> um, so where are we? Pretty much you have at this point, <clears throat> to bring all of the uh, listeners up to speed, is at this point, the TC Farm business is this. is It has pretty much gone from more of a CSA model to going direct to consumer at this point in time. You're actually delivering to the customer, they're placing their orders, and you're delivering it once a month. Correct? Correct. Customers could order once a month, but we now we are going to their houses directly. And there's a real logistical problem. We, since we were kicked out of that space, we also then needed employees. So now we went from having basically no employees because they were doing most of the work to need to hire people. So people came in and worked with us that we had never worked with and built this, built this biz delivery business that we had previously outsourced, brought it all back in-house at this new facility. And you can't really hire people for once a month worth of work as it's a... It's difficult. Yeah, it's a little difficult. I've out. tried. I've been at... Temp, temping is like a whole the whole thing. Yeah. And so that, how'd you solve that? So, well, we just... It was pandemic. So we just, it was, we just spread out the deliveries and things to a degree. But mm. there was really no way to make a viable business without having a weekly delivery service year round. Mm -hmm. And even just if you think about a traditional independent farm dropping off their CSA vegetables for the summer, they have, they have 18 weeks of deliveries. What are they doing with the rest? rest of the year. How do you hire labor to help you during that? It is not a viable business, which is why I say they just basically suck it up and sacrifice their lifestyle yeah, to make it happen, right? And so you need a year-round delivery for local food to work, mm -hmm. and it doesn't work to go to grocery store. So we said, well, we need to build a produce CSA because it's the only way to really have a weekly service. Mm -hmm. right? and, and so was it, was it in 2021, we started a weekly produce CSA. We contracted with a number of local farmers, that we had, we had worked with before in different ways or new. And there's also a great uh, co-op partners warehouse that we could purchase um, organic produce from that was like an aggregator. And so we could supplement, you know, when it was the early spring season and all of the local farms just have radishes and green, like greens that yeah. nobody wants like a $40 box of radishes like for their week, right? <laughs> it's just poor customer service. So we said we kind of wanted to make like a normal CSA where we could maximize the amount of local food by interceding it with food that was from California. So pe real people could eat it. <laughs> but that way the farmers could grow food earlier and later in the seasons because mm -hmm. no one can... Like the best food product we sell is actually a winter spinach that's raised in a, in a greenhouse in like January in Minnesota. It is so good. And you could never buy that in a normal situation because the farmer's not going to like raise spinach and drop off a bag of spinach at your house. Right. But if we put it in a bundle with some oranges from California or Florida or whatever, now it's a really great winter right. share. And so it's ironic, like, let's bring this produce from out of state, bundle it with local product, but that's the way to actually get more local food and build a, a, a revenue stream for the farmers that's year round. But also a seasonality, right? This Correct. is like where your boxes are, like where you're bringing oranges from Florida. It's like, well, these are in season. Let's continue this quality food trend that you've been building oh, yeah. your business like on. When you get the, those in season, whatever whatever yeah. produce it is, right. even if it's coming from a different part of the country, you know, it's a pretty special thing. And it's not like people stop eating food in the winter right? Yeah. by buying it from your local farmers. Instead, you made a viable business out of that local food business that right. would have been not sustainable on its own. I feel like I'm always so disappointed when I buy like an orange out of season. And I'm like, why do I even do this? Why is this? Yeah. Why did I do this? Why is this? I don't need to make this recipe right now that has orange in it because these are all out of season. You just need to put like a tablespoon of sugar on your orange or something. 100%. It's July. <laughs> yeah. So then at this point, I mean, you're really just, you're running a logistics business. Yeah, we set the standards. We're running a logistics business. We're trying to connect people who believe in what we're doing with farmers that are raising what we're doing together and make it 
more convenient and and work. Yeah. So the brand TC Farm is that. But even still, I look at it, I was like, well, that as much as we can grow and pandemic helped us get to a scale that that we could sustainably operate, like we really can't, you know, like you can't grow that brand forever. At some point, your customers yeah. don't know who you are. You mm-hmm. stop having a personal relationship with them. And so now you're just like, might as well be Butcher Box or Misfit Foods or something, right? To, yeah. to them. And so having that personal relationship, I think, was a real strength of mm-hmm. what an independent entrepreneur can do as mm-hmm. another farmer. And so that's what we're kind of only trying to lean into in the next phase. Okay. So right now you're just trying to essentially maintain a relationship with your customers. I think we're trying to build the TCFAR brand so it is what it is, but then our, we're trying to pivot the whole business actually to be a service business for other independent farmers who have their own customer base. So instead of absorbing them and trying to build the TC farm to be 100 million customers or something, like mm-hmm. we, we're trying to build that community as best as we can and support that group and, and obviously want that business to grow. But we're trying to basically give those logistics, all that stuff we've learned and built to what you might consider our, our competitors. Yeah. Someone who's at the farmer's market, who's struggling with all the things we suffered through. And so if we can let them plug into our network, then they... They can sell, maybe they're only selling vegetables, but they could sell someone else's chicken. Mm-hmm. Or we have an organic grocery line that everybody can order regular grocery products. And so they could sell those. And then they, and now instead of getting $40 a month from their customer, maybe they're getting three or $400 a month for their customer. Mm-hmm. And now their customer itself is supporting that farmer's or in our, if it's our customer, our business, you know, to in, in probably making those purchases from their farmer instead of from Walmart. And maybe the farmer makes, you know, we make 10 cents on that package of graham crackers, but that 10 cents makes that delivery more viable. It makes it so that the, the lettuce that they're raising doesn't have to carry the entire overhead of the business. Mm-hmm. And so the, the local food business itself becomes more sustainable because of the customers switching their products, purchases from them to their farmer. Do y'all still have a farm at this point? We don't live on the farm anymore. So no. when did that happen? Um, 2015. I was teaching part-time at the university before that, and we lived on the farm, and then I started teaching full-time, and we had two kids, or I was we had one in pregnant or something, and I was like, this is not sustainable to be driving like an hour each way oh, for yeah. this job and doing all of this. In the logistics of running the business and running the farm, we're getting to be more than we could do both. Mm-hmm. So that's when we decided to I do I mean, they're not. two separate businesses, Absolutely. honestly. Yeah. And, and that's, you know... What we're finding with all local farming is you can't do everything really well. Yeah. Right. So so we moved into town so that I could work and not spend all day in the car. And Jack could focus on the business side. And then we rented our farm to a couple that kept raising and did awesome things. And we've since sold that farm. Okay. So we had like a reverse commute to kind of manage the property with someone on site for, yeah. for a few years. Yeah. Right. So then at this point, do you think that you can take your business model... And could you bring it to other states, other areas of the country, and basically help change the grocery business? Yeah. I'm, our goal, I was listening to your EOS podcast, you know, like my yeah. goal, now, now I feel like we have a clear vision. Mm-hmm. Like before it was like, we're just jumping from burning lily pad to burning yeah. this. <laughs> now it's like, I can see the problem in the food system. I can see that the current paradigm for local food is not viable. It's not sustainable. It's not going to work. It's not going to compete with big agribusiness or the grocery system. But I think we can fix that. So our goal is to mm-hmm. be one of the top few grocers in the country in the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. We were um, had several different ways that this 
seems like it's kind of coming down the pipe. We we were awarded a significant federal grant to basically experiment with a different business model. Nice. To, get to show that. So there's a new website coming up in J- uh, January for our members that we were then going to allow uh, them to order full grocery. And and we're phasing that in. Of course, we can't logistically do it all at once. Mm-hmm. But each of the independent farmers then will have their own website. It won't be TC Farm, but the backend logistics will be all connected together. So the grant okay. is to basically bring in 10 emerging farmers with a small customer base and basically demonstrate that their customers get a better service when they can plug into our network. They have a better lifestyle. Their business is more profitable. Basically make local farming a viable independent business. So we're not taking over their business. We're now a service for them <laughs> and making that something they can continue to, to build on. So that's that's one piece. Also, at the same time we awarded that grant, we were told by our cold source space we're getting kicked out again. Like, gosh. And there's literally nowhere else to go. Like I had already, there's just, there's no option. Now everything is really tight. Pandemic, nobody's like worrying about what's happening. And so we kind of had to decide, like, do we just want to quit, quit the business? We have this significant grant. We have all these ideas. Now we actually know what we want to do instead of just having things happen to us. Yeah. And and do we do we just quit or and sell everything with the six months we've got, you know, in that space? Or what do we do? And I don't know if you have any comments on that period of time. We decided not to quit. You're coming out today to tell everybody that, yeah. Yeah, so we're quitting. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> we did not quit. Um, we needed to raise more capital because we needed to get yeah. our own space. Mm-hmm. And so now on the fly, we're still dealing with all of our own logistical issues, but now we need to figure out how to buy a building. How do you hire a contractor? How do you build cold storage? Mm-hmm. How do you build all these things that we had previously just been fractionally a part of? Yeah. And, and we don't personally don't have the capital to do that. And so we had a great banking partner that was super encouraging about the idea, helped us kind of go through that SBA process and just refining our projection models. We had the federal grant money that we knew we had a, would get us the technology that we needed yeah. to basically actually pull this off without us writing a check. And we were supporting that grant in different ways, but the software itself is 100% paid for by the federal government. Mm-hmm. And, and then we had some, several investors, um, some members come in, uh, one of our farmers and, you know, it's diff- different reasons. Some people see this vision where we really think that, that this model could revolutionize how food is raised yeah. and delivered in the country by, instead of us trying to take over and build our own brand, we're going to build other people's brands. They have the customers, mm-hmm. they've worked the street, they've got their own independent entrepreneur business. Their customers are super loyal to them, just like ours are for mm-hmm. us. Yeah. And we don't need to steal their customers. We need to make their customers work in a viable model. So by banding together hundreds or thousands of independent businesses as one group working generally in the same direction, we have more power, I think, than mm-hmm. Walmart's going to have or Amazon's going to have. Yeah. And if we can perfect that logistical side for them, they, we are going to be more competitive because customers would rather buy their graham crackers from their farmer than Walmart. Mm-hmm. And it's the same product at a similar price. Why would you Why would you put your money somewhere in a, in a business that you don't really believe in? Yeah. And so we think that that's going to be very competitive. Um, and there's a huge upside opportunity. So some investors just see that. They see the projections. They see yeah. what they think is going to work. And they, they, they don't really care much about the mission. Other people are like, here, I'm going to give you a six-figure check. I don't care if I ever get this back. This is a philanthropic investment. Yeah. And I believe in what you're doing. So it's really been humbling to have people support us in that way. And um, yeah. So I'm thinking back now to 16-year-old you. You start, you basically start a company networking, right? And I feel like the superpower or what makes you uniquely qualified to do what you do now is essentially your career understanding of network theory, right? Of how networking works, how the dot to dots are connected, 
how to take complex systems and connect them together. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think one of our members was meeting out with us to get a tour the other day. They actually called to ask how they could invest in, they were thinking farmland, but how they Mm -hmm. could invest to basically further this mission. So I was taking a tour and sharing with them a crash course on all the things that don't work with the food system. And, And one of them, they looked at me and said, you know, I feel like you're the kind of person who sees lots of ideas and gets really excited. And then if you have to implement them, you're just get, kind of get bored. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that is 100% why I'm, yes. I said, this is where this situation is a little bit different because I do see where this is. And now we have a team of people that they can be the integrator. Mm-hmm. Right? They, can, right. they can actually make it happen. Whereas I would not be successful in, in being that, that role that they have. So I have a lot of admiration and respect for, for our team that can implement mm-hmm. these ideas. And what I told them was, I, I think what I bring to the table is, I can see a million different things that seem unrelated yeah. and I can connect the dots in my head and be like, this problem, and this problem, this problem, this problem, this problem, this problem. And ah, if we solve this problem in this unique way, the domino effect comes and everything will connect together. Right. Does it work out exactly how I hope? Of course not. But like it's in the right direction. And I think I bring that unique perspective to the table. So I think what's interesting what you say is I think... A thing that I know I personally go through is that sometimes as entrepreneurs, we have a lot of self-doubt in our skills because we're like, I see so many people that are doing this like thing so much better and operational than me. And it's been interesting because the one thing that I've realized a lot from like growing my team this year is like actually implement, like willing things into the universe is a skill set that a lot of people though don't have. Like Mm -hmm. as entrepreneurs, we're like, you're like, well, we're just going to get another, like you didn't, we say like, you know, a cold storage, like a lot of people would just be like, fuck it. Like, I just don't want to do this anymore. So it's like that. I don't think we give ourselves enough credit of like how what might feel natural to us of to take that risk and just kind of like keep on innovating is actually like for a lot of people will never do that process. You know, does that kind of ring true? This like little bit of like seeing skills in other people, but not yourself. Yeah, I, I can see that for sure. Betsy was nodding her head for a while there. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I agree. If we are in video. No, I think that's completely accurate. And there's there's some level of just knowing like, I don't know how this is going to work, but it's going to work and we're going to make it happen. I think that's like the thing of entrepreneurship so much is like, it's so, it's not quantifiable. Like there's just this innate like gut intuition feeling of like, I just know it's going to happen, y'all. Like, I just know that this is going to work out or it's all figure outable. And like, I can't actually tell you how because it hasn't been written yet, but I know it's going to. And for some people that is just like, they're like, I just cannot go with that, that course of action right now because they're like, I don't understand. And I'm like, I also don't understand, but I know it's going to work. And they just are like, how could that be? But yeah. It's like taking that leap of faith and knowing that there's going to be ground down there. Yeah. I thought I always know there's going to be ground. I just feel like I have to leap right now. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's more like it needs to happen. Yeah. Uh, it's mm-hmm. going to happen. I don't know. But on the side of being the spouse of an entrepreneur, like yeah. we have conversations of should we do this or not? And I know that like I trust Jack to make good decisions and will things into being. Yeah. And even if like we know point A, we know point C, we're not really sure what B is, but I know he's going to figure it out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Betsy is also my boss because she's a, a chairwoman on our board. And so <laughs> she, I, I really rely on that dynamic of tell me when I'm just full of shit. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And, and I've lectured sometimes like, you know, you need to actually tell me I was an idiot. That was, you should have known that I was an idiot then. Well, I did, but I didn't want to be mean. No, you just need to tell me. <laughs> right. I'm an idiot. But then sometimes, I mean, there is this like this push and pull because my wife and I have a very similar dynamic with our business. And sometimes you do need to be reined in, but also you, you need that push and pull of like also being able to like really fight for what you think is 
you want and that you know is needs to happen or like the idea that you've had you're like no this is a good idea yeah and you need that little bit of friction just to get it off the ground i often just need to think out loud and half the time like oh yeah that was a bad idea but yes when you talk it through and then time to sleep on it and that pushback and that dynamic of no 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 then you refine it enough or now mm -hmm. you know maybe now it does make sense and it didn't if without that friction right I might have gone a little bit different direction. Ideation is a process. It's not like all of a sudden it's just like, oh, I said this thing and this is like rock solid. Like, no, no, yeah. no, never. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'm constantly throwing speedy at the walls. Like when I'm making decisions, I'm like, oh yeah, it's totally fine. Like that was just the first throw. Like we'll see. Yeah. Got some other red lentil pasta right, spaghetti throws here. It's kind of cool I made a really good like primavera thing. It was quite fine and everything. So I think that's just like, that's so exciting. So all of this is going to kind of like January is the new website then. Yeah, we're rolling the new website out. We have several products that are coming in with the, for grocer. Almost of those products are a private, initially a private label. Mm -hmm. So they're all organic grocery for the most part. We compete with what you might buy at Trader Joe's or Walmart yeah. for that in that category. Very similar price points. You know, we don't make a ton of money on it, but it an extra dollar for that delivery. It's like the more dollars you get per delivery, we are already spending all that time. You're already going to their house. It's more convenient for the customer. It makes us more efficient. It lowers the cost we need to charge on our super tasty chicken, <laughs> right? Because I don't have to bear the entire cost of that. If, if our delivery right. goes from $100 for that delivery to $200, all of that fixed cost is spread out instead of just on our special products. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is this then something that is still primarily for the Twin Cities region then or? Correct. Our current stage is we're piloting. We basically want to prove that we already demonstrated that with our current customer base, we went from only offering meat to offering produce and then our revenues was a double. Yeah. That made the business much more viable. We're adding grocery and that's going to increase a significant revenue if the customers can understand why this is important and mm -hmm. come along with us, which I think they will. And then we want to demonstrate that we can give that business model to somebody else. So someone else has their own. This is this is where that grant we're doing. Basically, I structured the grant to more like a research paper. Yeah. It was like a 300 page submission. And here's our feasibility study and all this. We believe that if we can provide this to other people, they're going to increase their customer revenue. And if you even look at Imperfect Foods or Blue Apron, yeah. those businesses, they only get like $30, $40 a month on average from each customer, which is a similar what an independent farmer gets. None of these are viable businesses. Mm -hmm. yeah. Those ones are just venture capital Ponzi schemes. And the farmers are just sucking, just sucking lifestyle, suffering through their lifestyle. Yeah. And so we think that by providing a different model to the independent farmers, and food makers that they will be able to get more revenue. And so if we can demonstrate in a small pilot program, ideally 10 farmers this spring for the mm -hmm. coming growing season, that they have the similar success of what we're expecting, then, then, then our next phase is to repeat that throughout mm -hmm. the country. Mm -hmm. There are several grants um, actually in, in states. So there's a possibility we'll apply in like Wisconsin, as well as in Minnesota to kind of accelerate that. Um, there's a ton of federal money to basically try to create something like this, but I'm not aware of any any other organization trying to build this this type of network. No, I think it's truly inspiring and I'm so excited for the 2.0 next uh, oh, school yeah. sports space and for sure. We don't have a closing tradition on our podcast, but I have to ask this question as a TC farm. What are, I'm going to ask this to both of you separately because I'm kind of curious. What are your top five favorite products that you sell at TC Farms? Like if you were like, if I could craft the perfect cart for you of these five products, it would be this, in my opinion. And you got to do it separate. So I'm going to go with some of those awesome brats because those are amazing they in really the summer. Are. I'm going to go with some winter greens 
because those are incredible and revolutionary to eat like freshly grown Minnesota greens in wintertime. <laughs> Fall apples. I like some of the apples that we get. Those are pretty rocking. Berries from our farmers in the early summer. There's nothing like fresh yeah. berries grown like right in the beginning of the season. Truth. And I get one more. Yeah. Bread. Bread. We, have some great, we have some great bread makers that just make awesome staple. Eat it every day and be happy. I love the olive garlic bread. Oh, man. Mm, I haven't gotten that one yet. Okay. Yeah. This was a very selfish exercise for myself. So, <laughs> yes. I do, right. I do eat the olive garlic bread pretty much every day. Yeah, I toast it up with the butter in the pan, just like crisp it up like Texas toast and then super good. Well, maybe a little avocado toast, pretend I'm a millennial or something. <laughs> my mouth is watering yeah. enough thinking about this. For me, I think I think uh, I love like the I can make it one thing with a few different ingredients, but like the bread with a summer sausage, and we also sell the Alamar camembert. Mm -hmm. So that was when I traveled back and forth to California. I would have our summer sausage and the camembert on the plane and the glass of he wine. He would open up the stinky bread on the plane. Oh, yeah. the stinky cheese. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah he would. was that yeah. guy. Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty great. Yeah, so that was my favorite thing. And I think one of the things I really enjoy that we haven't the pandemic and all the craziness has kind of gotten us away from was the cooking. So several of the recipes. We collaborate with our processor on. So there's a like pre-cooked smoked chicken drumsticks mm -hmm. and wings. And they're with those with those Red Ranger breed, they live twice as long as the grocery store. And so their their legs are running and they're also running around outside all the time. Yeah. So their legs are pretty tough. And so if you just take those drumsticks and throw them in the oven, like it's not gonna work out like you think if you haven't touched. But what we do is we pre-smoke them and add a little bit of salt and they get sous vide effectively. It's not actually in water bath, but it's in like a steam bath. Mm -hmm overnight and so they're they're still like you could still pick it up and take a bite out of it but they're super tender they have so much flavor like nothing like you could ever yeah. get even if you made it yourself from the grocery store because those chickens are six weeks old or something so they don't have any flavor and so that is probably one of my, my favorite products is those smoked sous vide items and what we've been able to build with our new space we just moved in in july 1st and now and our kitchen wasn't even licensed we just have our own kitchen now so we're going to start making a lot of like butter chicken and chicken moles and curry oh, oh yeah curries and like all those ready to eat meals that are yeah. recipes that were the reason we really got into mm -hmm. this was cooking and alex is our head chef right now and so he's currently testing so if you want to come out and test out recipes, yeah test yeah. out things yeah you can come you said out. curry i was like yes, yes. Some let's of my go. favorite. you just yeah. named like three recipes that if i'm trying to like cook something down to put back in the freezer yeah. Those are the recipes. And they they taste better when they're froze. 100%. Yeah. And yes. And so I'm actually really excited about those ready-to-eat meals because that is kind of drives my internal yeah. passion of how can we get really great food. I know that's not like a current product, but how do you get great food five days a week, though five days a week that you're working technically as a professional? Like how do you, that's, I, I think our challenge always is like, how do we eat great like we do on the weekends, but during the week? I listened to you say that the other day you were like, oh, I want to cook. And on Sundays you had the, wanted to cook all Sunday up and why don't I do this? And, yeah. you know, that's the thing that we don't do because we have still have, we have two kids yeah. and Betsy's job is just as crazy as mine at times. And, and, and so we don't have time for that. So it's, it's, it's a kind of a big loss for me personally, not to cook and do that on Sunday, but your example of just cook a whole bunch on Sunday, put it away. Yeah. Totally. But that's where I'm really excited about having a production kitchen because yeah. we can, we can have a really, like, I don't want to just get takeout. Yeah. Right. It's not a high quality product. Mm -hmm. And we can have high quality ingredients that are made really well in large batches that freeze well. And then I just take it out of the freezer and I got like the best dinner, way better than if I went to takeout. Yeah. Right. And it's probably going to be a similar price point because it's not takeout but it's a better quality ingredient. It's better for you. You're going to feel better. You're going to feel fuller yeah. with that meal versus what the, the junk that you get. And I'd say the produce, like in general, um, Eli manages, currently manages all of our produce. So we work with many different farms. And so in that, that seasonal share, 
there's always like most of the time there's a unique interesting item and we get like people will call us and be like oh what were those beets like we had multiple people like what was that red beet what variety was that and so i really enjoy maybe that's like i'm gonna put that in my group of all of things yeah but like just having something new not overwhelmed with it but something new and different and a variety a heirloom variety that is just you would never eat somewhere yeah. and you're like shocked like wow that was like a really good beet like who, yeah who gets, like we had multiple customers ask us what was that yeah it was crazy yeah there's a reason why these vegetables ended up on our shelves in the first place on grocery stores and a lot of times the ones that we hate at grocery stores now, it's because we actually haven't had them fresh. Mm-hmm. It's like they taste mildew, dewy. They just, they're not as good as they would be if you just pulled them out of the ground. I'm going to add one more thing, which yeah. is just ground beef. Especially when we had our farm, we pretty much, the kids, like what if I want to just feed them, I'll like just get a hunk of frozen ground beef out, put it in a super good high quality, right? It's not like the cold cows that you get in the grocery store. And you just put it in a pan and cook it. Mm-hmm. from frozen yeah and just keep turning it until the outside part gets crispy all crispied up yeah. and then throw some salt and thyme on it and maybe roast some potatoes and so that just having like a super the clean ingredients not yeah. making a big yeah. meal you just eat it by itself it's a, if it's a high quality ingredient you don't need to do anything with it right i think the ground beef is something that people don't it's underrated people are like well i have to make it a burger it's like no just cook it just yeah. meat's the best if it's not like watered down cold cow from right yeah yeah right yeah yeah and it still tastes good even then but it's just not the same yeah. All right. I will just make a shout out for the Italian sausage. That's like my personal favorite. Jack knows nice. this about me. I was like, it's so fun. I have so much Italian sausage at home. That's like our at home go to. <laughs> you buy the like bulk discount cake. I do. Yeah. I, it's, it's, yeah. We have a whole freezer and it is all of that. And then the bologna. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. But wow. Jack and Betsy, yeah. uh, this was amazing. Thank you so much. And I'm so excited for both of you and all of your future endeavors. And no more cold storage to find to like literally. Yeah, we have our own space. You oh have my your God. own space. And so where can your customers find you? Yes. Oh, we're uh, for our website is just TC, like Twin City dot farm. And uh, we are going to have a retail space in that Blaine facility that you can actually stop in and Basically, you have like a little grocery spa where you try a little sample of kombucha or coffee and all the samples and specials, and then someone else will get all your groceries for you. Awesome. Oh, my God. Yeah, Beautiful. Right. Cannot well, we'd wait. Love, yeah. Well, we'd love to have you back in the new year and see uh, yeah. Yeah. if it grows. Anytime. Awesome. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. What a story. Yeah, seriously, like what a story. And I just kind of love where it came at the end. And I think this is a really great example of how like entrepreneurship kind of has two paths sometimes. So it's like where you have this very intentional, like I'm starting this business to solve this problem in the world. And then sometimes entrepreneurship is just because I like love and have a passion for this. And it just kind of like I have this entrepreneurial spirit and I'm just going to kind of keep on growing it. And both things are really awesome. They're just bit, look different sometimes in the beginning. Yeah, just following your passions from one thing to the next or following your interests and just being like, I'm curious about this. How can we make it better? I'm curious about this. How can we make it better? I know. And I'm like, cannot wait for my next TC farm order to like put it in this like olive bread. So excited. And I'm hoping to get to their test kitchen to test some stuff. Yeah. No. So if you like today's episode very much so, like share it with a friend and also go and support TC farm and all of their next ventures. Um, And... What we'd really appreciate from all of you is we're planning out the 2024 season is if there is an entrepreneur that you would love to hear from, you may know them. You honestly may not know them, but you've always been curious to understand what is the behind the scenes story of how they got to where they are. Please reach out to us via email at hello at theokspod.com and or on Instagram and really kind of just let us know who it is. We would really love to plan out a really dynamic 2024 season and we're ready to go for some moonshots like 
like, if you're like, I don't know how they're going to get this person. I also don't know how we're going to get that person, but we're going to try. Because, but we're going to do it. Yeah, because you're already at a no. So if you ask, you might just be at a yes. So, yeah. So please do that. And then also share this podcast with five of your friends or anybody that you feel like would really benefit from it. It would be super great and we'd appreciate it. Thank you and have an okay week. Have an okay week. All right. Bye. Bye.